Hello and welcome to Legal Tech Arcade with me, Rob McAdam, an independent podcast about tech-driven legal service delivery and the people and products that make it all happen. Okay, welcome to this week's episode of the Legal Tech Arcade podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Evan Wong, CEO of Checkbox AI, based in Sydney. Evan, welcome. Great to have you on the show. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Rob. Yeah, no problem at all, mate. No problem at all. I think um, I think we first met uh, properly at, at Clock, actually pre-COVID, back in January. I remember um, the, the hall there being quite busy and just wandering around and then bumping into you, seeing your T-shirts. Um, and <laughs> it, I, I, the year before, so just the end of, I guess, 2019, I'd, I'd kind of come across Checkbox uh, and was really interested. Uh, it looked really interesting what you guys were doing, the way you'd set up and the product, etc. So I think when I saw you, I was uh, probably a little bit overexcited. <laughs> was, that, was that your first, um, first uh, visit to Clock, uh, foray to, to, to Clock in the UK? In the UK, that's for sure. We've been to Clock um, in Australia the year before that. I uh, found that very useful. Mm. Um, and so I thought we would check out the one in, in London. Yeah. As well, and um, was was equally as excited to meet you as all Rob. Uh, I think it was it's uh, it's a totally different magnitude, I think, in London than the one in Australia, which is why it's so great to always be you know moving into new markets like the UK or the US, and but still sticking in the same industry because it is a small community, mm. um, and everyone's solving the same problems, and there's so much knowledge to be shared. So yeah, it was it was really exciting. Yeah, you know, you see a lot of the same faces across the events as well. So um, mm. I, I don't know whether you've ever done the, the the big one the clock in uh well the, the one i went to i think back in 2018 was uh las vegas and the bellagio so that was <laughs> that was on a whole different scale um yeah but that was good as well but yeah it's nice to see a lot of the same faces travel as well both in the uk and and, and the us and, and i know some people also you know uh, make it over to, to australia as well so uh, no completely agree um <laughs> So, so in the first episode of Legal Tech Arcade, I kind of came up with this icebreaker for guests um, playing on the, the whole arcade theme. Uh, so we had Stuart Barr on from HiQ uh, last time, and I asked him kind of whether he's into video games, what his favorite video games were. So I, I think I'm going to throw the same question at you. Um, are you. Is that something you're into? Did you play as a kid? Do you still play now? What, you know, what, what, were, the, what were the games that kind of really got you going? Yeah, um, so I'm a 90s kid, so I grew up a lot when um, sort of maybe black and white games was turning into color, but it was still sort of pixelated, and I remember playing a game, um, actually I played this one called Bubble Bobble, I don't know know how many people remember that one, but it's basically you're you're this little dinosaur and you shoot bubbles, and there's sort of these 99 levels that you go through, um, and you're trying to, you know, basically uh, uh, capture all these monsters as you go through, so I was quite... I was quite into that as a kid. Yeah. Um, I obviously then moved on to Pokemon. It was a very <laughs> yeah. big thing for me. Yeah. Um, and I was really upset as a kid, the fact that Pokemon weren't real. Like, I just really <laughs> wanted my own Pokemon. Devastated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you ask for one yeah. for Christmas or something like that and just get, get yeah, told, it, yeah, they're it's not one real. Of those, <laughs> that's it. It's one of those things where you realize that it's never, ever going to come true. It's not even like I want a dog and maybe when I grow up, I'll get one. It's it's like I'll just never, ever have a Pokemon. Well, yeah, no, I don't know. Like, well, let's just see how 2020 is pretty weird. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if someone someone discovered they were real or something just in some jungle. Uh, was that what was that on? Was that like a was that a video game was on PC or what? 
be uh, playing. So, so Pokemon, so Bubble Bubble, yeah. the one I mentioned first was arcade, um, but the um, but Pokemon was on was on um, sort of Game Boy, yeah. uh, Nintendo Game Boy. So yeah, it was. Um, <laughs> it's quite it's quite interesting now thinking back to handhold consoles and, and things like that. It's, it's gone a bit out of fashion now. Oh, I feel. Yeah. I I remember uh, Sonic on the same Sega Game Gear. That was uh, I was obsessed yeah. with that for a long time. But uh, yeah, no, it's all good. Anyway, on to uh, on to legal tech related uh, stuff. Um, okay, so I want to kick things off because I, I I know Checkbox quite well. I'm sure a lot of people listening will know and have seen of Checkbox. But I thought perhaps you could explain, you know, what is Checkbox as a product? Uh, you know, what does it do? What is uh, what are its main kind of features, functions? I know it's described as expert process automation (EPA). Um, there's lots of other kind of names being passed around at the moment around, you know, around robotic <laughs> process automation, business process automation, yeah. decision automation. So what, what do you see Checkbox as? What is it? Yeah. Um, so, so I, I love that you're, you're using the, the label that we gave it, which is EPA. But um, if I, if I use a more generic way of understanding Checkbox, we, we we're basically a legal automation platform um, that is targeted at really three key areas. Um, one is decisioning. So a lot of the sort of decision tree logic or the rules based sort of legal reasoning. Um, the second thing is document generation. And the third thing, which is probably where we differentiate the most and, and where we, where, where most of our customers and investors are very interested is in the workflow component. Um, and, and it's really the marrying of those three components that make us unique because, you know, document automation isn't new tech. It, it's been around for ages. Yeah. There's a lot of, yeah. you know, um, players that have been there for, for many years and, and same with decisioning and workflow to some extent as well. But it's, it's actually when you start to bring all of them onto the single platform and realize that, you know, um, business processes and I'm, and I'm using the word business here very intentionally because legal work is often just a part of a bigger business process. Business processes isn't just generating a document or just doing the workflow or just doing the decisioning. It's the end to end process, right? Mm. And so. If you really want to create that um, and uh, that kind of um, user experience and, and really de- deliver the value that business users are looking for, um, uh, you know, you really want to unify all of those. So we do all of that with our code, um, and we're part of kind of the movement called No Code yep. platforms. And so you you imagine all the different you know uh, automation types from automating your NDA to automating your approvals to automating tr- like intake triage um, to be able to build all of that yourself as a legal team instead of relying on the IT team or the vendor is really that sort of value proposition that we provide to the market. Yeah, no, and it, and it is it is awesome. And I, I like what you've just picked up on there as well around these these workflows and these solutions actually forming part of much broader business processes. And I think that's actually sometimes where uh, legal tech goes wrong, actually, is in mm. seeing itself as purely legal tech, um, which is probably quite a law firm centric view of the world whereas yeah. and, and, and we'll come on to it in a second i know that you you do a lot of the in-house market but you ask any in-house mm-hmm. lawyer you know and they say well i i'm just one piece of a much broader commercial puzzle which is you know, getting contracts done getting deals done buying selling whatever it might be legal is just one piece there's there's lots more elements to it and and actually as a lawyer i need to fit with other people's processes be it procurement sales or whatever it might be um so i think that yeah that's really interesting observation and then, and then you mentioned the kind of how it works and the whole approach around i guess it's the way i see it is it's kind of input logic and analysis and then output 
Um, and mm. you mentioned workflow and that being a distinguishing factor. I, I guess that's another another to- another word, another topic that actually gets used quite a lot and people get confused by. When you say workflow <laughs> in check checkbox, what what do you mean by that, and how is that a differentiator for you guys? Yeah, that, that's a really good point, Rob. Because I, I hear the I hear the phrase workflow or legal workflow so much. Um, nowadays um, and it's used with different sort of understandings sometimes people actually use the phrase workflow um, today to to mean literally just decisioning like just going through a particular legal problem solving yeah. path um, but when we use the word workflow we use it in the more sort of business process uh, sort of traditional sense where we're talking about the fact that legal work as to your point isn't just um, a silo it's not just um, its own individual uh, discrete piece. Mm. Often when work is done, it needs to go from person A to person B. And and person B might be another person in the legal team, but it could also be a, a, a totally different division. It could be someone from finance, someone from procurement. Um, and it's it's the workflow that facilitates the movement of the legal work, whether it starts in legal or ends up in legal. It's the movement of that work between different departments. Here's another word that's been thrown around as a buzzword, which is interoperability, yeah. right? So yeah. how do you make these sort of interoperable um, uh, sort of workflows, right? And mm. beyond that, it's also the concept of approvals because you know what moves between people is work, but the work is either to be continued or, or approved. Mm. Really, there's just those two parts. Um, and so it's about facilitating not only the movement of work, but the review and the approval of work as well. Yeah. Um, and to do that digitally, because, you know, we, we work with so many different organizations, both law firms and, and in-house counsel. And in-house counsel can range from, you know, your very small sort of corporates right up to your large global banks. And um, the approval workflows at the moment is tremendously manual. Um, and it just, it's all in email. Um, and it's, it's these crazy multi-threaded emails that have 20 people in it um, with a document. Uh, versioning happening every single yeah. time someone replies. It, it's just it's just messy. Yeah. So we, we try to make that a bit easier. No, it, it, it is crazy. And um, what I find interesting about workflows is how you decide how much of that workflow should take place in, in the platform versus, mm. and you just mentioned the interoperability point, which is how much of it should ha- should take place in the tools that the people in that workflow actually use. So you know, I've seen examples where solutions have been built and, and the workflow's been been delivered through a single platform and then everyone's been told you have to come and work here and, and it, it'll handle all your workflow and the approvals but you have to work in this platform um, mm. and a lot of the common pushback will be well that's not how I work I don't want to access a different platform I work in Salesforce for example so it would be much easier for me to, to action things in the platform I'm working in how, how have you how have you approached that I know when I look at the when I look at what you guys do and, and I was looking at the website the other day and actually um, looking at all the integrations that are possible mm. with checkbox. It looks like that's that's a big focus for you. Is that how have you approached that point then, the interoperability point and making sure people can work in the tools that they like? Yeah, I think that's a really important point. It's it's almost um, naive for a vendor to think that you're going to you know ch- you know to ask um, an organization, a customer, to change their behavior to suit your platform. Um, and I think there's it's a lot deeper than that, right? So particularly when you sell technology, regardless of whether it's for law firms or, or in-house counsel, mm. um, you need to understand there's an existing technology stack, existing technology strategy, um, and you need to play well with that in order to be successful as a technology vendor. So um, 
so, I mean, you've literally answered your own question, which is it's, it's really, you know, making sure that you have the right integrations in place so that you're not necessarily replacing or disrupting heavily the current flow of how they work, but rather that you're enhancing the current stack that they have. Yeah. Um, and so uh, to, to give a very simple example, um, you know, when we talk about approvals in checkbox, we could, um, and we, and we do this as well. It, it's an option, but we could force users to log on to checkbox and all the, People who need to be part of approval workflows need to have a checkbox account and, and do that. But what we also understand is that there are very senior people in organizations who may not want to have another system yet for them to have a password for and to log into and, and understand. And, and so, you know, having the option to even approve just in the email itself, yeah. as an example, right, yeah. um, is something that we have a checkbox. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's really creating enough options and flexibility for the customers to decide. Um, what is the best user journey for our for our organization? Mm. And, and so and so EPA uh, and the whole process mm. automation piece. It doesn't feel like it's in the grand scheme of things particularly new, um, but it mm. does feel new in legal. So what? And, and, <laughs> and it's it's interesting because there's obviously checkbox. There are other other vendors out there doing similar things, perhaps not as well, but doing similar things. Why have we seen this kind of? I guess proliferation maybe that's it's too strong a word but pro- proliferation of, of platforms that are tackling this and, and kind mm. of doing this whole no code automation piece now why now why is for such a knowledge heavy industry like law yeah why, why is it only emerging now i think there's two factors there's one that's sort of um sort of uh, almost in some sense artificial and external and then there's, then there's internal and, and very real so if I start with sort of the internal one first, um, it comes from the fact that uh, a lot of it, it's it's kind of how the economy at a macro level is evolving over time and the impact it then has on legal teams. So, you know, talk like I talk to so many different uh, legal teams on, on a day to day basis and there's a very common thread, um, which is. The business, the broader business wants to do more. They want to win more deals. You know, the, the, the strategy for 2021 is to, you know, increase the deal flow by 20%. Mm. But at the same time, on the, on the counterbalance is we also want cost reduction uh, or we're going to reduce headcount or you're not going to get any additional uh, resources um, to facilitate that. And, and when you think about the legal team's role in a lot of this, it, you know, the work that a legal team has does multiply with the activity of a business. Um, and, and also the, the other factor is the increase in complexity of the regulatory environment as well. Yeah. You know, regulations just yeah. multiplying like crazy, trying to keep up with inventions primarily driven by technology. Um, and, and so as a result, the legal team not only has more work, not because the, for two reasons, the business is becoming busier literally because they, they're becoming more ambitious and, and second of all, regulatory um, environments are getting more complex. Mm. But at the same time, the headcount doesn't increase. And so you end up with this situation where uh, it almost becomes a mantra now where everyone um, hears, you know, legal teams talking about do more with less, do more with less, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so when you have a fixed headcount to support an increasing amount of workload, the only way you really do more with less is well, you hear a lot about people, process, and technology. The people part is capped. The process, you can always try and map out and improve, but fundamentally to scale and to sustain, it really is through technology. Technology, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and, that, and that's why I think in the recent years, there's been a much more em- a stronger emphasis 
on sort of this concept of, you know, workflow and business process um, automation in the legal industry, because we see that now this is almost like the limiting factor for us to, to continue to sustain uh, as, the, as the future continues. Um, that's the internal reason. I think the external one's a lot simpler, which is externally, there are um, movements now like legal operations um, coming out of the US and obviously very much so in the UK now in Australia. I, I know it's just starting to emerge in the Asian market, like Singapore as well. Um, but organizations like Clock are doing a great job in educating the market, um, and, and putting onto, uh, putting, putting sort of, um, uh, uh, people's attention onto even the fact that maybe we should run our legal teams more like businesses, that we should be looking at data and yeah. process improvement and providing superior client experience. Yeah. And, but that's, uh, that's a really interesting point. So, you know, I've, I've done a lot of work with in-house, uh, counsel over, over the last few years. And I think all, all the, aspects and the impacts that you're describing are you know, spot on in terms of that more for less you know, piece you know, trying to service more work with with less resource um but also dealing with a kind of a growing regulatory landscape being required to be more you know themselves be more strategic uh, as, and step up and become more of a trusted business partner of the of, of their organizations rather than just servicing you know, routine day-to-day work so uh, the way i see it is that that they've only got one pair of hands and what they're saying with these with using tools like checkboxes it gives me the op- option to have multiple pairs of hands i can i can do what i was doing and make sure the business gets what it needs in a timely manner so that i'm not delaying anything business is getting done mm. but i'm not necessarily having to be directly involved and i can focus on the things that that are important to me um i, I think the other the interesting thing as well from where are we seeing this growth in, in these tools? I think if you look at the law firm side, I also think it's on the, it's down to the fact that I think law firms are realizing there's an opportunity to productize their services um, more. Mm. And so that that's why they're looking at knowledge automation, decision automation tools to try and take their knowledge. But I wonder whether they're, they're probably not in the, they're not in the same position, I don't think, as, as in-house. Because in-house are used to, I think that process piece you just mentioned, I think in-house yeah. counsel are good at looking at that. Even if they didn't have the technology, mm. they'd, they'd started to look at the process. I, I think law firms are slightly behind in that. Yeah, I think, no, that's a really good point. And and, and I think you're right. Um, I don't think it's necessarily that the law firms don't have the processes in place. I think what's lacking is deeper than that. It's around the culture. Um, I think they don't have the culture for it yet. Um, and, and And culture is such a hard thing to change. It, it's not as simple as process, which you can really implement um, in inverted commas, you know, overnight culture can't be changed overnight, and um, and it's it's you know pro- you know productization is such a different concept from services, right? Mm. Product and services yeah. are two different, totally two different businesses. And if 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 law firms have been running you know for decades and decades on on a very profitable service model, um, it is it is um, understandably very challenging for them to suddenly switch to to doing product development go to market like commercialization of products and and even on the on the market front um convincing their clients that they should be you know either using or or at the extreme end purchasing products from a law firm <laughs> um it, yeah. it seems like quite a foreign concept but I, but I, but i do see definitely as you say a huge trend um, in that direction, which which i which i love i think that's the right way um the legal industry should be moving no it, it is it is fantastic that 
and, and it's, it's being powered by tools like Checkbox and you know other other mm. no code uh, platforms. Uh, and, and we'll come on to a second. I've got I've got some questions I'd like to ask around the whole topic of <laughs> law firms developing their own software. So uh, sure. no, we'll, we'll definitely get we'll definitely get onto that and have a good conversation there. I just what I thought though is we could take a step back for a moment. We we we've heard what Checkbox is, what it does, who you're serving, but what just on a kind of a personal level. I guess what is the background to Checkbox? What, from your perspective as a founder, um, what motivated you to start Checkbox? Yeah, so actually, when I was seventeen, I started another business before Checkbox. Um, it was called Hero Education, and it was in the education space. Um, I set that up. I, I grew it for for quite a number of years, and at the time, I was also um, doing my law degree at university, and when I actually uh, hired people and had a, had a team going, I would jump on the government website and try to work out, you know, okay, now that I've got people working for me, how do I comply? What, what's the employment law behind this? Are they are they contractors? Are they employees? Are they you know what's the difference between casual and what's superannuation? All those all those sort of questions I'd, I'd I'd be asking. And what I was presented with was walls and walls of text from government websites. Um, most of which didn't even apply to my situation, yet yeah. I still had to trawl through and read. And even when I thought I found what applied to me, I still wasn't 100% sure if that was actually what was correct. So when I finished up university, I thought to myself, well, if I came out with a law degree and I was struggling to that extent, I can't imagine how you know um, people who did not come from a legal background consume these this type of content. Um, so, so that's actually how Checkbox started. It was with the okay. mission of how do we make compliance and legal content more practical, more personalized, and more action-orientated in a way where I can actually tell the computer what my situation was and that the computer would then be able to serve me exactly the information that I needed and even produce some of the outputs like a contract mm. Um, for my need, and that's really the inception of the idea. That's how it came about. So it's like a person, actually, a kind of a personal need, you know, from your own experience, actually trying to digest this complex, text-heavy content and just get the answers <laughs> that you needed. It kind of drove you to, to yeah. develop this. And and how yeah. how did you go about that though? So is it something that did you develop it? Did you bring in um, the technical skills to help you build the platform? What did, what did the kind of the early stages look like for Checkbox? Yeah, so there's actually a um, so so first of all, I didn't build Checkbox in the early days, nor did I build it today either. <laughs> um, I'm, I, I don't come from a technical background myself, which which um, I think allows me to to have more empathy for the no code part of our business. Yeah. But um, I think there's a there's always a big misconception actually, um, and I always get asked this question. There's a big misconception around technology founders needing a technology background or skill set. Um, the truth is, in order to build a very successful business. Um, and a very successful technology startup, you just need to be very good at empathy mm. and and customer validation, which is or customer development, which is finding product market fit. It's really going out there and not being solution focused, but being problem focused, speaking to as much of your um, prospected sort of customer base as possible, and and truly understanding their problems, and then designing the solution around that before you actually go and invest even the first dollar into you know the actual software development of the tool itself. And so in the early days of Checkbox, we actually spent um, a total of almost almost 11 months um, before we even wrote the first line of code in Checkbox. We spent 11 months just talking 
to people in the industry trying to figure out what was a worthwhile problem to solve. Uh, I say, I mean, I love hearing stories like that because I think you're absolutely right that the temptation is to when you have an idea, you think I'm going to build, mm-hmm. I'm going to build an application for that, um, but <laughs> you don't even know whether you have the right idea, whether it's solving the right problems. Uh, yeah. whether it'll even work for, for your market, whether you, the market you think you are targeting is even the market that you are going to be targeting. And I think that's where the whole product mindset, product management mindset kicks in and taking that product first, or, or, or I suppose, as you said, the empathy first approach to, to actually ask the right questions, not try and deliver up answers and, and validate the answers you've come up with first before answering mm. the questions. So, I, I completely agree. But when you did move, when you did move on to to development uh, of building the product, so after those eleven months, how did you um, how did you build it? I I just know that there'll be a lot of people yeah. listening that that will be fascinated to hear how kind of you go mm. from idea to first product. That's true, and that and and at the time that felt like the biggest chasm to cross. Um, how do you go from, you know, now that you've got an idea to the actual build itself? So, so for us, um, I think it's really important to always have uh, a technical business partner, um, just because whilst you can always hire in a development team, you want to still, um, especially if, if your business, uh, and, and, and yeah, basically if you think your business is very technology centric and it's a core part of your business your value of the, of, of the company, you, you want to have quite a strong sort of understanding behind it. So I had um, a, another co-founder, a good friend of mine called James Hahn, who, um, who joined me on the journey um, kind of a few months in, and he was the founding CTO. He, he, he's now moved on into um, the COO and CF role, CFO role in our business, but he was the founding CTO and he built the first sort of uh, minimum viable product or the MVP uh, of, of Checkbox. Um, and that was really just to get us, um, again, uh, far enough in the customer validation state before we then hired our very first engineer, mm. our first software developer. Um, we started with two and tried to go as far as we can with two developers. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fine balance between, um, you know, cash flow and, uh, and, and growth. And so we, we, built, uh, the built, we built the product, um, made some early dollars, and that allowed us to then justify hiring um, a, a few more developers. And really, we, we had the whole development team in-house, given the complexity of our, of our product. Uh, and, uh, and really, you just build it feature by feature. Yeah. Um, but still, really, um, the design behind the underlying product uh, was driven by myself and James at the time. So we'd design from wireframing to literally the colors of buttons, how things would look like. The studio today, the drag and drop studio, was all de- de- designed by us. Uh, we didn't have any sort of expert UI UX person to do it. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's all founder led as, as all these stories start. Um, we're wearing probably 20 hats each. Well, but that's, that's awesome though, because I think what, what we're seeing in terms of these, these no-code platforms is that the, uh, the, the user interface and that, that kind of um, drag and drop aspect to a lot of these tools is becoming increasingly important. So the fact that you came mm. and you, you developed that interface yourself, I guess, based on the, the conversations and the, the validation that you were doing is is fantastic because I think that's what's that was that's what differentiates tools in this space is how intuitive mm. they can be. Obviously, there's the the power and the functionality, but if you've got the power and the functionality, but people can't actually get what they need um, and do yeah. it themselves, it gets frustrating. So actually, making things as straightforward, as simple, as intuitive as possible is so key in this space. I think you guys have got a, you've kind of nailed it and got it right. I would say. 
What, what oh, would, thank you. What, yeah. What was the what was the big moment then? So you've built the you've built your your kind of first iteration, or maybe your few iterations down the line. What, what was the moment you thought we've got something here? Well, you know, whether it was kind of a conversation with a maybe a, a previous or a current client, um, or some validation in the market. What was the point at which you went, "Yep, we this is going to be good." So, yeah, so it actually took us a long time to get to that moment. Like I'm just going to put it out there first. It took us a long time mm-hmm. to even get to that moment. And it's such a, it's such a, what's the right word? Like it's such an anxious um, experience as a founder to yeah. go, it, like, you know, I'm not talking about weeks or months. I'm talking about more than a year and, and stretching to two years sort of, you know, territory of you're spending so much time and money building this product and you know there's enough validation to get to the stage that you are there but you're still not feeling you're really hitting product market fit um it's such an anxious feeling um but we that that kind of penny dropped uh funnily enough when we uh decided to just focus on a particular customer segment because the challenge for us and and this is all the same challenge for many platform plays um and, and and definitely in the no code space as well is that often platforms can apply so broadly across different industries and use cases and and segments and geographies that you can get very distracted in the early days to try and chase all of them. And we were doing that to some extent in the early days of Checkbox, um, thinking that we could solve everyone's problems. And and whilst we could, um, it meant that we weren't focused. Um, We weren't focused from a product development perspective from a sales and marketing perspective, from a strategy perspective. And it all really just clicked and made sense. And, and life just became a lot easier mm. when we decided, look, we're going to focus on legal. Um, and here are the kind of eight reasons why we decided to focus on legal. Um, and all of a sudden, yeah, all the decision-making was easy. Is it part of legal? No, don't do it. Is it going to further advance sort of, sort of our development in this area? No, don't do it. So um, that's, that's probably the moment. And, and it was very much validated when we landed our first big um, contract with um, Australia's biggest telecommunications company, yeah. um, which, was, which, was a, which obviously is a, a, a big leader in, in, this, in this space. So, um, yeah, that was, that was a very good moment for our, for our company. No, I think it's a really good point. And we, I, I touched on it in the last episode, actually, with Stuart Barr, where we talking because we had, we had a conversation about platforms and the problem. It's not a problem with platforms, um, but, it, but because they're so versatile, because they can literally be used not just in legal. A lot of them can't just be used in legal. They could be used anywhere, really. They're just a very useful mm. tool to to automate and, and build workflows or visualize data or collaborate or whatever it might be. Um, it does require focus. And you know, when, when I think back when, when I was a high Q, obviously it was predominantly focused on law firms. Um, that, that made up 80% of the client base, probably law firms. Um, but we switched our attention to, to corporate legal and it did, it's interesting mm. what it requires in terms of a change of approach within the business. So it, it, it forced our product guys to think differently about the, the, the different challenges that are new, that the corporate legal market were facing. It, it forced things like the client managers to work in a different way um, in how they worked with and managed clients, client success to talk about different options, different solutions that were possible to grow the platform, marketing to switch their messaging, even solution consultants to just change their approach and their terminology in conversations with, with that market. Um, and move away from talking about fee earning and partners and, and even mm. matters. You know, uh, that's interesting. A lot of in-house teams don't want to talk about matters because matters are a, a law firm construct. 
lawyers, like in-house lawyers, like talking about projects because that's what they see it as. It's a business project that they're yeah. working on. So it was it was fascinating, you know, and you're absolutely right that it, it it does require a change of approach. And I can see from an early stage perspective, from your guys' perspective, that when you had something so great, it's quite easy to go, I could solve this, I could solve this for you, and I can go over here and solve this for you. But the, the kind of the real aha moment comes when you find your niche, and or at least your your first niche, and you can absolutely nail that first, and then and then land and expand from there. That's right. Um, That's right. What what's it? I, when we spoke last, what was interesting is, and just to keep on this kind of topic, that um, I think unlike other no code platforms, you definitely seem to have focused more heavily on the in house market, and it sounds like that was kind of down to some of this early stage analysis and and, and finding that focus. Um, so it sounds like that that was intentional um, that you focused mm. on the in-house market. And, and so how has that gone for you? Was that was that sounds like that was a good decision? Um, was there any other reasons why you went down that route versus perhaps targeting law firms? Yeah, so it, it was definitely a good decision. Um, there are many reasons why um, it's a good decision. I can share some of these now. We actually started with law firms, like many uh, legal tech companies. I think mm. they often just think immediately um, to serve law firms. Um, and we did start there, but we were very clever, I would say, in pivoting um, away from law firms as a core. We still work with law firms um, and we still, we still you know, welcome them to use our platform, but they're not um, necessarily the target for us as much as in-house now. The, the reason for that is... Um, Again, there's many reasons, but the key reasons are this. For law firms, um, as we mentioned, it's around productizing legal services. And the current state of the market is that uh, a lot of them are still yet to have, as I mentioned before, their culture catch up to it, which means that you're really fighting an uphill battle. You're trying to convince um, a partnership model uh, to invest their dollars into something that is um, largely speculative in terms of proven value. And, and is very client driven. So from a vendor's perspective, the, the user, the beneficiary, the beneficiary of your tool isn't your direct customer. The law firms aren't the direct beneficiary of checkbox. It's their clients. It's the tools they build on checkbox. And so what we're now risking sort of the timeline and the cost and the ROI and all that stuff on is the success that the law firm has with our tool when serving their clients. And so that degree of separation makes it very, very tricky for us as a vendor um, to sort of um, to sort of kind of push along with the velocity that, that we would like. Um, it's still really exciting though, because you know, you're, I love working with law firms in the sense that you're really, you're actually changing their business model, right? Yeah. Um, and you're doing stuff that's really, really different. So I love doing that, but unfortunately as, uh, as a business commercially, it makes a lot more sense to go the other way around. And, and I'll tell you, uh, there's an interesting dynamic that happens as well. Because when you think about law firms, their clients are in-house counsel. Uh, if we're talking about corporate law firms here, their, their clients are in-house counsel. So if you actually end up having the in-house counsel teams come on board as your customer, the law firms suddenly become really interested. You don't even have to sell to the law firms anymore. They come to you because they want to know why are all their clients using this thing called Checkbox? Yeah. And, and, and we have this really interesting situation now where we do have law firm customers that are, check, that are, that are checkbox customers, but their clients are also checkbox customers. And it's created this sort of like ecosystem where the law firms are building applications on checkbox for their clients, or their clients are actually requesting the law firms to build certain apps for them. Um, and, and the law firm is actually charging for that. Like they're literally making money 
by being experts on checkbox yeah. it's it's quite a it's quite a heartening um sort of sort of realization um and sorry did you want to yeah i was just gonna say yeah. on that actually because i was gonna ask that question whether you're yeah. seeing more uh of an approach where in-house or corporates are actually purchasing checkbox and then saying okay okay guys my, my panel panel of firms we've got this tool um we'd like you to build on it so it sounds like that is happening mm. and then for those clients law firm clients that are checkbox customers as well um are you seeing and and does the platform support this the building of solutions on one instance of checkbox and then the porting across of those solutions so almost the templating across of, of solutions mm-hmm. between instances i know for example we, we developed that functionality out of high fairly recently um does checkbox support that yeah we've had that for a while okay. um and that that all comes down to our product strategy so um you know for, for us where we dream really big at checkbox uh, again we're not just trying to build, um, like we're not even trying to build just a no-code platform that that automates, you know, the, the decisioning and the documents and the workflow that I talked about before. We're seeing this as a way to really um, productize services, right? And so in our pro- in our actual platform, there's a very simple way to export export the entire solution. So that meaning not only the application that you've built in terms of the logic and the and the workflows, but also the dashboards and the analytic setups, um, the the sort of user access control, all of that is actually bundled and exported with a click of a button in Checkbox. And that creates a code that you can provide to someone else and they can just simply import that entire setup into their separate Checkbox account. So it's actually very uh, a very simple way of doing that. So um, of course for us, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, Evan, I didn't want to interrupt you. I was just say it seems like you've actually built the product to essentially be viral in a way, mm. the way the way it's built and the templating and the fact that you know you're targeting in-house counsel, knowing that the likelihood of the product spreading to law firms is there. I think it's just a really interesting approach to kind of tackle that and build it with with a kind of a viral viral mentality in mind. Knowing that it's yeah. it's going to spread, it's going to spread with with actually not too much investment on your part, and it's not even um it's not even just to the law firms. It's um we always get in-house teams asking us if other in-house teams have already built something for this particular use case because why reinvent the wheel? Um, and often many in-house teams don't compete. It's very different from the law firm world where where it, competition is a bit more sort of um, head to head. When when it comes to sort of in-house teams, they're a lot more collaborative and you know, um, they love the fact that someone else has built this on Checkbox and they're happy to share that sort of uh, knowledge and expertise and even the template. So uh, for us, having that functionality makes a lot of sense. And the the, the second phase um, of that functionality is to launch, you know, somewhat of a, of a store or a marketplace where people can, in fact, just um, share them uh, publicly uh, and, and, and download them as well into their own instance. So mm. uh, really excited for that for that sort of ecosystem to start developing. Mm. It's a it's a really good point you just made there around the the sharing culture within in-house teams. I think that's what I found most refreshing about working with with corporates and in-house teams is mm. that they're actually as you say they're not competitors. I mean, yes, yeah, the, the organizations in some cases might, might be competitors, but the legal functions aren't competitors. And and sitting mm. around a table with some GCs or legal ops professionals just sharing their experiences, challenging challenges it's actually just really enlightening because they'll, they'll be very open about what each of them are struggling with, how they've solved it, what they're doing, which tools they're using, um, best practice. Um, and you just don't get that in, in the private practice 
uh, market because I think a lot of a lot of law firms think what they're doing is special uh, and and distinctive. Mm. Actually, you know, what's interesting is in a lot of cases it's not. And I think from a, from a vendor perspective, you actually get to see that sometimes, don't you? Because you work with so many, <laughs> yeah. you're going to walk into one one law firm who say, don't, "Don't tell anyone what we're doing here." So you know, it's really it's so special, top secret. And then you walk for your afternoon meeting with the law firm down the road, road and they're doing exactly the same thing. Um, so I, I always find that interesting. But um, just on the on the law firm side, what 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 do you see as the biggest challenges you know, in terms of uh, you know? adoption of something like checkbox in a law firm i know you've touched on a few of them already mm. but i find this quite interesting um I, I agree adoption in-house is quicker it's slightly easier smoother law firms it can be a little bit prickly it can be a bit of a challenge sometimes what what are those challenges so i think one of them is sort of um almost like a like a bit of a historical um sort of issue where I think law firms a few years ago went down this sort of hype of innovation and software development and and they they spent in some cases millions of dollars mm. in sort of technology and innovation and trying to develop their own software as well. Uh, needless to say, that didn't go too well. Um, I don't think many law firms came out the other end uh, winners from that. And so you have this now generation of you know partners who have seen um, money go down the drain. Uh, when it comes to these sorts of initiatives. Yeah. Um, and so it's a lot. So, so yeah, so you're fighting sort of that kind of um, burnt um, uh, generation when it comes to when it comes to technology, um, particularly around tech that you build and then put in front of clients. So so there's that. And that's not in every firm and that's not in every team. But there's definitely that that's definitely present um, as a challenge. Um, <clears throat> and then on top of that, it's also uh, capacity. Um, it's the billable hour. It's, it's a very common thing, you know, um, the business model. Uh, lawyers make money in six-minute increments. Um, spending time to build applications does not contribute to that. So if you're not incentivized um, in the business model to to invest in these types of technologies, then it will just never happen. I've seen law firms try to get around this um, with things like uh, like uh, uh, like taking out time for um, innovation uh, activities yeah. as being sort of like billable hour quota relief for certain like ticketing systems. Like you almost get a coupon of how many hours you can spend a week. Um, but what I see as most effective, it's kind of like a hybrid because you need almost a non-billable sort of um, uh, team who, who can just focus on these sort of client solutions and, and, and sort of value add uh, innovation. Uh, but you, you fundamentally can never um, uh sort of detach the lawyer from that because ultimately the lawyers in your firm are the subject matter experts. They're the people who understand the client and the law the best to bake in the valuable IP into the technology platforms like Checkbox to then create a valuable product. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's um, that's definitely a challenge. It's getting the lawyer's time and incentivizing mm -hmm. them through through a new hybrid version of the business model as we see today yeah no again yeah completely agree i think on your point around the big failed projects is that is really interesting actually when you go in and talk whether it's a corporate or it's uh, law firms everyone's got an example of a big project that failed and and they've just been burnt mm. they've been burnt and, and and it kind of colors their their view of building solutions going forward and and then i think on the you know on the point around the product teams as well I think we're seeing more and more law firms build these types of uh, product or solution teams with dedicated resource, uh, legal engineers, in some cases, product managers, 
um, to start building solutions. But I think you're absolutely right. The key thing that's missing is almost that dedicated knowledge resource, which is I think it's something mm. that can't be done. I don't think it can be done part time. I think if you're going to build something, you need dedicated attention because it is it is complex. It does require thought. It does require structuring of knowledge and know-how. It does require you know a lot of other things you know in terms of once the product's built in in terms of debugging and testing etc. And you you can't do that with someone who's just notionally got the ability to earn a few chargeable hours if they dip in and out. You need someone that's kind of mm. fully focused on it. Um, sometimes I, I, I so I'd, I'd agree that that tends to be where we see some of the biggest challenges emerging in law firms and adoption is is definitely with not necessarily the technical resource. It's actually the knowledge resource. That's right, completely. Um, and and what's interesting though, uh, the whilst it's no code, so we're talking about no code platform, and there's obviously great benefits for lawyers not having to sit down and and write code. I think we'll all agree, you know, that's 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 a good that's a, that's a good thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I suppose coding, you know, coding and software development isn't just about writing lines of code. There's a lot that goes into it around, uh, you know, version control, testing, regression testing, debugging, yes. as we've just just mentioned. So there's a whole load of other stuff that goes along with software development. How how have you perhaps tackled some of that? Because I guess things you build still yeah. need to be tested, um, even though they're no code, still needs to be tested. So how, mm. how have you approached that? Yeah, it's it's actually a big misconception when people um, come in from an industry like legal into software development thinking that it is simply just the build, uh, because it is so much more than just the build. Uh, Despite it being no code, you're still developing applications and therefore it needs to go through the proper sort of software development lifecycle. And that's actually, you know, how we tackle it at Checkbox is we have an entire team that educates our customers. Um, we, we help them set up these sort of models and governance structures at a people and a process level. And um, to share a bit to, to people listening um, on, on this here is uh, you, you, you go as early as the ideation phase. You need to have some sort of framework to um, generate ideas, prioritize ideas, um, lay them onto a roadmap, and then from the ideation phase, be able to move into the design or the scope phase. You know, because ideas can be wild, they can be Im impractical. Um, they, this is, I mean, this is why so many of those large projects failed. It was probably at the design phase where you actually define what is a must-have versus could-have yeah. uh, versus a should-have, and 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 you know, can we break this into different phases, phase one, phase two, phase three, not let's build the entire perfect solution straight away before yeah. we put it in front of a client, which is a, which is a very lawyer, lawyery thing to oh, do. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, to, to be able to go, you know, that whole entire sort of mentality and sort of mindset and how to develop software, not even in the build phase, like we haven't even gotten to that yet. I'm talking about ideation and, and design and scope. And then once you work that out, you start to do the build phase but even after the build phase, people don't realize, as you mentioned, Rob, there's the there's the testing, there's the UAT, um, there's the user acceptance testing, and that's also part of the change management process, involving some of your end users and stakeholders into the testing process. Um, and then after that, going into deployment, and then finally uh, adoption, adoption and change management as well. How do we how do we measure the success of an application after we've deployed it to work out do we continue to maintain it? Because there is a cost in continue uh, to continue to maintain. It's not set and forget. Mm. Um, you know, do we do we deprecate it because not many people are using it? Is it is it the way we've designed it that's wrong? 
So there's a whole entire life cycle that I, I think a lot of people underestimate when they come and, and look at software development, particularly in the legal industry. Um, so yeah. it's an education piece. Yeah, yeah, I think it goes back to that point around if if you want to take more of a product approach, whether, again, whether you're corporates or whether you're law firms, if you want to have more of a product approach, it's not as simple as just bringing in, say, a developer or product manager. Yeah, that's having mm. a product manager in, in any team, I think, is always valuable going back to your 11-month example around the empathy and the questioning and, and actually un- uncovering the real challenges and the problems and the the, uh, the desired outcomes. But that's all great. But as you've just mentioned around, okay, you've launched a product. Well, how is it being used? You know, you need to look, you need to build in and, and identify, yeah. Look, someone needs to be looking at those stats, looking at user behavior, taking constant feedback amongst the, the, the client base, client success. Again, that's a role that I think we'll see more of both in, in mm. organizations and, and law firms with the growth of no code. Um, so you've got client success. Support, again, that's you know another one. It's very, lawyers, again, uh, can be very focused from a, in a project mindset of I'm just working to the delivery of this project. And so mm. they take the same approach with product, which is I just need to build this product and then my project yeah. is done. But you think, <laughs> actually, well, how's it being supported? Problems if there's a problem. Who's going who's gonna to deal with that problem? When are they going to deal with it? What are your SLAs around that? And I think, again, it's, go, it's that topic we've come up several times in this conversation around. If you're going to start to build product, you can't approach it with a services mindset. It's got to be with a, That's right. with a, with a product mindset completely. That's right. That's right. But that also, you know, Rob, that also introduces a very uh, interesting opportunity for law firms as well because – as you mentioned, with services, you do the delivery and that's it. And that's, you know, your value contributions done and, and you kind of walk away. Whereas that's why so many product uh, businesses have this sort of recurring subscription model because there is ongoing value that is de- delivered around the support aspect. And if law firms understand that and are able to capitalize on that, they can actually, you know, tap into that sort of recurring uh, model uh, in loose words, you know, the, the make money while you sleep business model um that yeah. the, that the services businesses don't get get a piece of so it, it it's it's uh it's worth sort of the the partners and the um sort of the mds of of law firms you know turning their minds to and experimenting with um and considering because it is it is a very much more exciting business model than one today totally uh, so i've got a couple more questions uh before we wrap it up evan um just, just mm-hmm. one thing I wanted to touch on, again, when we spoke previously, a really interesting concept we were discussing was around risk tolerance and the importance mm-hmm. of risk tolerance when, when dealing with no-code platforms. Um, and it kind of goes back to that, I guess, that desire for a lot of lawyers to, to come up with the perfect solution for it to be spot yeah. on and almost plan it to death. Death by planning you know, can be a problem because, because of this desire yeah. to be so, so perfect and cover off all eventualities. But I guess... With anything like a no-code platform, anything you build, there's got to be an element of risk tolerance in building it. Mm. Um, you know, have you seen clients and organisations struggle with that kind of balance? All the time, um, it's a very common thing uh, with lawyers. Unfortunately, um, it, it helped. The reason why is is that that's how they uh, make their money. That's why people pay them for what they do. It's mm. it's that sort of uh, aptitude towards risk. But that's again back to providing legal services. When you build product, the mentality needs to be different. Um, you need to adopt sort of like a lean, uh, they call it sort of the lean startup methodology, which is the ability to have an idea, build, and then test to iterate on that idea as rapidly as possible. Um, it's about getting feed, real feedback from, from your users rather than, as you say, death by planning. Uh, 
Um, and it fundamentally comes down to risk appetite. I'm not necessarily saying that you throw something out there that's imperfect, that's going to get you in trouble because risk comes in spectrums and, and errors comes in spectrums. Um, what is an acceptable, what is an acceptable um, uh, sort of gap for risk versus what is not, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that goes back to what I was talking about before um, around almost like phasing your, your projects. You almost want to phase and classify um, what are the sort of critical must-have um, elements of a product versus the, the should-have, right? And, and being able to make that distinction and, and decide what your risk appetite is because um, way, way too many times have I worked with uh, lawyers where they rework the logic, they rework the wording, um, and then after they rework the wording, they send it to another lawyer to, to just double-check to be sure. Yeah. And that lawyer then, uh, you know, applies another few months of, of sort of review and, and, uh, and, and lawyers are busy. They're, they're poured away to billable work. And, and then, you know, 12 months passed and, uh, the, the product hasn't come out of the ground and the regulations changed. So all the work that's been put in it's, is no it's, longer it's relevant. wasted. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, like, oh, it's, it's, it's crazy. It, so, yeah. um, <laughs> it's, I guess it's about spreading the risk as well. Um, and, and yeah. not, not taking it all on your own shoulders and just saying, actually, you know, if we're going to yeah. experiment, we're going to try something, maybe we identify, you know, if you're a law firm, you might say, let's identify two or three clients and, you know, let's just go to them and say, we're trying this. We don't know if it's going to work. We think it could be really impactful for, for you and for us. So would you be willing just to work with us on it? We'll make, we'll, we'll be successful. We'll make errors, but we'll shoulder that together. That's such a, that's such a great, uh, such a great recommendation, Rob. Like I think a lot of law firms as well is quite, uh, are quite scared to, um, open the kimono and be a bit vulnerable with yeah. their clients, but you, you actually realize very quickly, especially when you're sitting on as a third party, like in our position as a vendor, when you're talking to both sides of the market, that there really is no reason not to do that. Like the court, like the in-house teams are actually wanting their law firms to, to, to bring those conversations in. And when you actually approach it with exactly the way you've put it, let's collaborate and work this out together on this journey. Um, then, you know, then, then it really de-risks de it because, um, you know, you're, you're transparent about it. Yeah. 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 Okay. I, I could talk, I could talk for a long time with you, Evan, because this has been fascinating and I love, I love the topic <laughs> of, of no code and, and creatively building solutions and the challenges and that, how to overcome those. I, I just want to wrap up with, I suppose, one question, which is, um, well, I guess kind of two parts really. So what do you see as the future of kind of expert process automation and, and no code platforms in in legal mm. and can they survive on their own so can are, are they platforms that can can get by or do you think we're going to see them being consolidated i know there's a big kind of legal platform mm. play going on in the market right now um where do you think that things are going to head over the next two or three years yeah so i think for legal teams uh whether that's law firms or or in-house no code. This is this is this is the dream, right? As 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 the CEO and founder of one, I and we have customers doing this. I want to have the industry look at no code and realize that it is not just simply a tool to build a point solution. It is so much more than that. It is literally if you perceive if you look at a no code platform strategically, and understand that now you have a tool set where as soon as a problem arises, you actually have the means to go and solve it very quickly then that's when you become uh, very, very uh, agile and able to make the most of every opportunity um, um, out there, right? Because the speed in which you can actually solve problems as they appear is, is becoming rapidly more important. Mm. 
Um, so I think that's going to become a very important movement um, and hopefully a realization for the industry in the next years to realize that no code is more than just solving that point solution that you might be thinking of today, but it's more strategic than that. It's, it's literally your toolkit to solve problems as they arise. And we saw that with COVID, actually. A lot of our customers built COVID applications, um, um, yeah, yeah. You know, spun them around within a week, right? Because uh, COVID's so dynamic. Um, in terms of in terms of can it stand by itself, that's a really interesting question because there is, as you say, a huge consolidation of legal tech, um, and and that's to the point of again, point solutions are all either being acquired and integrated or starting to expand themselves into a, a broader platform play. And you look at the big tech giants like Microsoft in the recent mm-hmm. very very recent few years, moving into huge platform plays yeah. um, instead of point solutions. And it's going to happen with legal. Um, will no, no code stand up to it? I, I think they will because I think the nature of no code in itself is a platform play. Um, and, and the fact that it can solve so many different use cases, uh, not just within legal, but as I mentioned earlier on this, on this session, across legal as well. Um, for legal to almost become, if they're starting with no code, they almost become the expert for the organization. What a, what a crazy spin that would be in terms of technology yeah. leadership. Um, so I, I think it can stand by itself, um, yeah. but who knows? Like the, the the world is evolving so quickly, and uh, it's it's uh, back to square one, which is which is you know so long as you keep listening to customers and what they want, you will build the right product, and we're going to keep doing that at Checkbox. Awesome, I completely agree. Yeah. I, I I love them. I see them as these these tools like Checkbox. These are utility tools. You know, they're they're, they're almost like the Swiss Army knife of you know of, mm. of legal technology. Um, and I think I agree. I don't think it is about being absorbed into a into a much larger platform, I think that comes with its benefits, but it also comes back comes with its drawbacks. Uh, I think the, mm. the name of the game will be what we spoke about earlier, which is interoperability um, and just mm. making sure that you, you can be flexible, agile, do what you need with the tools that you need, working with the systems that you need. Um, Evan, this has been absolutely fantastic. Um, I really appreciate you coming on the show and just talking about checkbox and sharing your knowledge around no code and, and expert process automation and some of the challenges. I know this will be really interesting for a lot of people listening. Um, so thank you very much. I hope you've enjoyed the experience as well. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. It was such a great conversation. Thanks, Rob. No, no problem at all. Um, and for everyone else listening, um, thank you for joining. And the next episode of Legal Tech Arcade will be out in a couple of weeks. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of the Legal Tech Arcade podcast. If you enjoyed the show, then please go ahead and subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you next time.